as um, a tale of jealousy, deceit, slavery, misrepresentation, injustice, lust, rivalry, and forgiveness. The story of Joseph is one of brother against brothers. They need to encounter imprisonment, deep trials that do not produce self-pity, and prosperity that does not bring accompanying pride. In fact, the story of Joseph has everything in a sense. Yet, behind it is one that displays God's glory. And as we come to this the five verses, I just want to um, remind us of something going on here in Genesis. It's Moses writes, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. You know, it's easy when we come to the Bible for us to sort of isolate chapters from one another. But if you've read the entire book of, of Genesis, you might have come across this very word, generations, and it appears about 11 times in Genesis. The first we see it is in, in chapter 2, verse 4, where Moses writes, these are the generations of heaven and earth. We shall see it in 5, verse 1, generations of Adam, chapter 6, 9, 10, 1, and on and on and on. As I said, about 11 different times. And depending on your translations, you, you might have it as these are the generations or these are the descendants or this is the story of. And in a sense, what Moses is doing is not just providing transitions and divisions in the book as he writes it. But he's, he's showing that this is a unified story because the story begins by God making the heavens and the earth. And the story continues with the fall of man and on and on with God's judgment in the days of Noah and God calling Abraham and choosing him and making a covenant with him and making a promise to him. And so as we go through this story of Joseph, I want us to have at the back of our mind to be aware of the unity of Genesis so that it will help us to better understand and interpret the story of Jacob and of Joseph. So verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. And as the camera sort of focuses on Joseph, on, on Jacob, it moves to a particular person in his family, the person who is Joseph. I've titled this um, sermon, Joseph Loved, Hated, and sold. As this chapter gives us, in a sense, those three main episodes of Joseph's life. He's first described as a young man, 17 years old. And we know from the story of Genesis that his father had worked and labored for Laban, and he had become a shepherd in that process. And he owned sheep. He owned sheep. He was rich. He had flock. And here, Joseph is shown as, in a sense, continuing that family business with his brothers as he's pasturing the flock with them. Again, 
The family of Jacob is described as a polygamous family. We know the story of Jacob, how he wanted to marry Rachel, but Laban tricked him. And he got married first to Leah and Rachel, and how he had relationships with the concubine, the servants of his wives here, Bilhah and Zippah, his father's wives. So Joseph belonged to a polygamous family. First, I want us to see, as I said, the title, Joseph Loved, Hated, and Sold. That Joseph was uniquely loved by his father. See, parents should, should love their children. It's something that should be natural. But what's different about this kind of love is that Jacob separates or sort of shows favoritism and partiality among his children. You know, parents would have, could have a natural sentiment to, to their children. Well, when it's only one, no one will question that sentiment. But what about when they become two or three or four? And you have the challenge of being fair and being just and not being partial. But when the first one comes, you, you're overwhelmed by that one. But when another one comes, you realize that they are not just different. Some of them are smart. Some of them are not smart. Some are messy. Some are more organized. Some are agreeable. And some are not. Joseph, or rather Jacob had 12 sons. And we know he, we had a, he had at least one daughter. But he clearly loved one more than the others. Verse 3 says, Now Israel, as Jacob loved Joseph, more than any of the sons. And the reason that he gives is not because Joseph was agreeable or smart, but because he was a son of his old age. We go back to Joseph being 17 years old, and we know that he had elder brothers from Leah. But it wasn't just that Joseph was the son of his old age, but Joseph had come to him from the wife that he really loved, the one that he wanted. And so there was that special attachment to Joseph. He loved him more than the others. And he didn't just keep this love in his heart. There was an evidence of that love. He made him a robe of many colors. Joseph, or rather Jacob showed his love to Joseph by a coat of many colors. And in a sense, this is, this, uh, some of us would think about you know, a robe with different colors, maybe 12 colors, 10 colors, 11 colors. Actually, it is a robe with sleeves, a royal robe. It is a robe that is very special, distinguished from a normal robe because it had extra length and long sleeves. This robe was probably more than a symbol of Jacob's special love for him. But rather, he was actually showing or saying to the other brothers that Joseph was going to be the ruler over the family. He was, in a sense, saying, whenever you, you look at this son of mine, he is the one who is going to rule over all of you. It was, in a sense, a regal or royal robe. But again, when we go back to the story of this, the preceding stories, we'll remember that Jacob 
was born in a family where there was divided love. In Genesis 25, verse 28, we are told that Isaiah loved, or sorry, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah was loved by Jacob. And Jacob knew how that partiality and special interest divided his family and wrecked his family. Jacob is continuing that very unwise lifestyle. In a sense, he's, he's, he's continuing that vicious cycle. And we, we see that his action here is not wise. He saw how Esau almost killed him because his mom, who loved him more than Esau, had helped him trick his dad. He knew the dangers of having favorites in the family. He knew how it created rivalry among siblings, how it created jealousy and hatred and unfairness. Yet, Jacob continued it. And just as it didn't go down well with Esau, we see that it doesn't go down well with Joseph's brothers. So Joseph was uniquely loved by his father. And his father shows the evidence of that in this robe that he got for him. But secondly, we see that Joseph's brothers hated him. Joseph was hated by his brothers. The first verse 2, the last part of verse 2 says Joseph had brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. And while they were out taking care of his father's flock, Joseph had come back with a story. Some have suggested that you know, Joseph had exaggerated it because we don't exactly know if the report was true or false. But we know that this report had sort of strained his relationship with his brothers. They, they, they hated him because he brought a bad report to their father. And secondly, they hated him because he was loved by their father. Imagine every time they, they looked at that coat, they just wondered, I hate this guy. Every time they looked upon him, moving around, so this very young 17-year-old boy, who does he think he is? And they refused to speak peacefully to him. At the end of verse 4, he says they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. The word there is shalom. And it's a way that the Jews greet themselves. And greetings were very important in that period. You can imagine if you had a friend and you meet him on the road and you just walk past him and completely ignore him because you guys have an, a disagreement, you're quarreling. And these are brothers in the home. And there is no civility in their language to, to Joseph. All they have to, towards him is anger and hatred. And they could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph's brothers hated him because he brought a bad report to their father. They hated, hated him because of the coat that he wore, which was a symbol of their father's special love to him. And thirdly, we see that he, he was hated because he had dreams. Every one of us, or at least most of us, dream. And many of our dreams are forgotten. Some are remembered. What's so special 
about this dream? Since everyone dreams, why hate him over this dream? Well, again, the, the, the dream sort of intensifies the symbol of the coat. The first dream is, as Joseph narrates it to them, there were shifts, 11 of them, and they all bow down to that of Joseph. Think of it. This is this young man wearing this coat, which is a symbol of royalty, of kinship, of him reigning over them, and coming to them and saying, I had this dream. And in this dream, we are out. And my sheep stood, and yours bowed down to mine. And days later, he comes back, says, well, brothers, I've had another dream. The second dream, verse 9, he dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. His dad was the sun. His stepmom at this point, Leah, was the moon. And the 11 stars symbolizes brothers. And Joseph is telling them, you're all, you're all bowing down to me in that dream. Look at the brothers' questions. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. If we look at the, the progression of this deep negative emotion that they had towards him, at the end of verse 4, he says they hated him. At the end of verse 5, he says they hated him even more. At the end of verse 8, they hated him even more. At the end of verse 11, they were jealous of him. See, this was not just anger. This was deep resentment that was growing. You can think of Saul and David. When Saul became jealous of David, and that jealousy began to haunt him, and the anger began to grow. On a particular day, when Saul saw David, he says, he said, probably just pin this man to the wall. And that's what anger does. It starts little and it grows and it destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys nations. And people are ready to kill because of the hatred and resentment they have towards others. Cain and Abel is another example. And John uses that illustration to pass the warning to his readers in 1 John chapter 3. He says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said, if I, you don't literally have to have killed someone to have committed murder. Anger and hatred and jealousy is akin to murder. And you probably see someone and you say, you know, God is blessing him more than I am. And you're, you resent him for that. Someone is probably getting more promotions than you and you resent him for that. He's succeeding in his academics over you and you resent him for that. And it begins to build up. That is the progression of the hostility between these brothers. They hated him. They hated him even more. They hated him even more. And they became jealous. And they were looking for revenge. When he told his dreams of his brothers and his father, his father rebuked him. And Jacob knew that God could speak through dreams. In the previous chapter 28, Jacob was fleeing from his brother. He had a dream. There was a ladder and God spoke to him. And he knew that his family had been chosen by God for a special task. And he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to you? But his father kept the same in mind. In a sense, his father pondered it and wondered, could this be the promised child? Could this be the one? Could this be the king that God has promised us? He kept the same in mind. But on the other hand, his brothers were jealous of him. His father loved him. His brothers hated him and sought for vengeance. There was no peace between them. It was a hostility. So that's verse 2. To verse 11. In verse 12, Joseph is sold by his brothers. Verse 12, he says, Now his brothers went out to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And possibly now Joseph's favoritism is now shown in him no longer going out with his brothers. We don't know if that's the reason. Because in verse 2, he says he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Now he's probably at home on his favorite sofa watching Netflix or the Premier League and chips and drinking, whereas his brothers are out under the sun. And then Israel said to Joseph, I'm not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And he said to him, go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Interestingly, the, the word there, well, is the same word, shalom, peace. Whereas David's, uh, Joseph's brothers are not speaking peacefully with him. 
They're not speaking any word of shalom to him. Here, his father is sending him out to see if his brothers are at peace. So he went. His father sent him. He obeys. He went from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked, what are you seeking? He says, I am seeking my brothers. Tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Growing up, there were days where we used to, or at least I used to resent going on errands. And so you look for the slimmest excuse to avoid an errand. So maybe your mom sends you to go and buy, it's a biscuit, just for example. And you go to the first shop and they don't have it. Because you don't want to go any further, go back home and say, I didn't see it. But here we see Joseph is the opposite. He really wants to bring back word to his father. He's going as an obedient son. He wants to do what his father has sent him to do. And as he doesn't, although he doesn't see his brothers at the place where they should be, he's searching for them. And someone who had his brothers, as he said, I heard him saying, let's go to Dothan, find him. He tells him where they've gone up to. And then Joseph goes after his brothers and he finds them at Dothan. In verse 18, they saw Joseph from afar. They probably saw him in the robe. Say, so here he is again coming with that robe, that coat, with so much hate. And now Joseph is away from the love and protection of his father. Now they have an opportunity to eventually get their pound of flesh, their vengeance. And they conspire against him to kill him. This is where the hatred and resentment has led them to. This is where the bloodthirstiness has led them to, to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. They don't identify him as their brother. They identify him as a dreamer. And they mock him. He has a dreamer. He's coming. He's not our brother. He is a dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him. Let us throw him into one of the pits. I want us to take notice of that as we go on. Throw him into one of the pits. There were more than one pit there. Then we will say, as they conspire, the plan is to kill him, to throw him into one of the pits, and then to lie about it. They said, a fierce animal, that's the plan, a fierce animal has devoured him. That's the lie that they plan to tell their father. And we will see what will become of his dreams. This dreamer, this, this young boy who thinks he's going to reign over us, he's going to rule over us. It will kill him. We will see what will become of his dreams. That will be the end of his dreams. It will come to nothing because we have ended him. That is their plan. But apparently some of them are, have not completely lost their conscience. And one of them is Reuben. In verse 21, when Reuben had it, he tried to rescue him out of their hands. You know, Reuben was, Reuben was the eldest, was the first son. But sadly, Reuben, I think in chapter 35, had slept with 
one of his father's concubines, one of his father's wives. And his relationship with his father definitely had become strained. And maybe Reuben was looking at this as an opportunity to reconcile with his father. If I would rescue this son that my father so much loves and bring him back to him, then maybe my father would forgive me and, you know, our relationship would be amended. And then he will restore me to the rightful place as the leader of the family. Because apparently, Jacob had looked over him, had looked over Reuben, and he now sees Joseph as the favorite one. You don't know, maybe that's what's sort of going on in Reuben's mind. But he tries to rescue him. And he says to them, shed no blood. Just throw him into the spit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him and restore him to his father. And Joseph finally arrives. All this is going on when Joseph was still far away and walking towards them. So when Joseph came to his brothers, the first thing they did was to strip him of that robe. So it's the robe of many colors that he wore. That robe that was given to him by his father. And then they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. As I said, there were more than one pit there. But here I think Moses is helping us to see that there is, in a sense, something going on. Because if Joseph had been thrown into a pit that had water, he would have drowned. Possibly there is. Why that particular pit? Possibly there is. An unseen hand who is protecting Joseph in the midst of all this. The pit he was thrown into was empty and there was no water. Yet look at the degree of callousness and loss of conscience in his brothers. What do they do next? They do not wonder why are we doing this to our brother? He is our brother, after all. What did they actually do? They sat down to eat. This is your brother. Yes, he brought a bad report to your father. Yes, your father loved him above all of you. Yes, he's had those dreams, and the dreams possibly mean that he's going to be a king that will rule over you. Does it deserve this sort of treatment? And then you sit down to have a feast. See, these brothers are a real example of the wicked human heart, of wickedness at its peak. They are feasting. Whereas your brother is in the pit crying out for help. And, second, and again, they, they, they look up. The first time they looked up, they saw Joseph coming from afar. This time, as they look up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The Ishmaelites were the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son from Hagar. They came with their camels bearing balm and mare on their way to Egypt. 
And then the second brother who speaks up, this time is Judah. He said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his brother? You don't know, maybe Judah, in this sense, is trying to be an opportunistic person or actually trying to save Joseph. But he sees this as, you know, if we kill him, we're not really going to gain anything from it. Why don't we just sell him and, you know, we have more money to buy more food. Come now, let us sell him. Let us not lay hand upon him, for he is. Finally, someone identifies him, not as a dreamer, but as your brother. He is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listen to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pits, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. This was what, in their own eyes, their brother was what? 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. As I said at first, talking about the pit, it seems that there is an unseen hand protecting Joseph. But again, when we go back to the dreams, who sent those dreams? In this chapter, there is no mention of God. We we do not see God's name appear here in any way. But we know that it was God who sent the dream. We know it's God who is, who's protected Joseph's life. But yet we also see that it's God who sent Joseph to Egypt. You know, in Genesis chapter 15, they said, this is a unified story. In Genesis chapter 15, from verse 12, where God had a covenant with Abraham, and he says Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and dread, a, great, dread, a great darkness fell upon him from verse 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for a certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four Hundred years. See, this is Egypt is the land where they would be afflicted for those four hundred years. And these are Joseph's brothers wanting to end the dream. And they are selling him, they've sold him to Egypt, the very land where God says, where God told Abraham that his descendants would be for four hundred years. In their mind, they had ended his dreams. Let us now see what will become of those dreams. Whereas, what they are actually doing is helping to achieve, achieve God's plan and purpose. Because God's plan and purpose in the story of Joseph was to take him to Egypt. And in that, during the famine, to, to use him as an instrument to preserve not just the lives of the Egyptians, but the family of Israel. And indeed of the whole world. As God promised Abraham that through his seed, through his family, he would bless the whole world. And this is his brothers thinking that they have brought an end to Joseph. Whereas, there is someone behind the scene whose plan and purposes they are actually bringing to pass. 
They took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben comes back, the one who wanted to save him, who wanted to rescue him. He comes back and Joseph is not there. The boy is gone and he says, and I, where shall I go? And then the brothers go back to their initial plan to lie to their father. What do they do? They take the robe, they slaughter a goat, they dip the blood, the robe in blood. And they went to the father, they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and says, We have found this. Please identify it, whether it is your son's robe. And he identified it. It is my son's robe. They are not just lying, they are deceiving their father. And remember that Jacob was so was one who deceived his father. And he's, in a sense, experiencing that same sinfulness that there was in his family. The fierce animal has devoured him, they say. Joseph is in doubt, torn to pieces. Then he mourns. He's not, he's not being able to be comforted. He says, no, I shall go down to Shua to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him for many days. He's been sold to Egypt. His brother has been deceived. Yeah, his father has been deceived with a lie. And that's what happens when people, when, when we do not, in a sense, own up to sin. These are sinful men, his brothers are. And how do they try to cover up their sin? With more sin, with lies. I wonder how they were able to keep those lie, that lie for days, for years, for months. Yet, they covered it up and they deceived their father. Just a passing thought. It's not the main point of this passage. But a passing thought that when we do not, when you do not confess your sin and repent, you need more sin to cover it. When you do not come to God and own up to your sin and confess and repent, you need more sin to cover it. So Joseph was loved, he was hated, he was sold. So the question for us is, what really does this passage teach us? And we just want us to, to be thinking of the three things, I've mentioned one um, person, I'll get back to it, but first, I want us to remember that God's people suffer. You see, God has, had chosen Joseph for a particular task. But here he is experiencing suffering. He doesn't, the last word he says, actually, he speaks, is to the man who, who told him where his brothers were. From the time he arrives to his brothers, from the time he's thrown into the pit, we don't hear anything else from him. And we can imagine him put on the caravan and looking back and he's wondering, where are you people taking me to? And he sees his brothers holding the bag of money. He's in pain, he's in suffering. And his brothers don't really care. 
His wicked, sinful, and evil brothers do not care. In the past week, I saw a news just reminding me that it's been nine years since about 200 plus girls were kidnapped in a school in Nigeria. And many of the students were released in batches. But around 100 are still believed to be in captivity. And the story goes on to describe the pain and the agony that their parents are going through. And one of the mothers said, I am still suffering from high blood pressure and stomach aches because my daughter is still missing. Even today I'm in pain. I endure thanks, which I endure thanks to painkillers. Says, I always used to be such a strong woman. We have not had news until today. And they are suffering in the hands of wicked people. And this is Joseph here, suffering in the hands of his wicked brothers, being sold, being taken into captivity, into slavery. And the truth is that God's people do suffer. And even and especially in the hands of sinful and wicked men. At every level. I don't want to go into examples, but you can fill in the blanks. God's people suffer in the hands of sinful and wicked men. And just as Joseph was silent in his suffering, you know that there was one who was silent in his own suffering as he suffered at the hands of wicked and sinful men. And as Isaiah describes him as a suffering servant, and as he stood before Pilate, and Pilate was wondering, why are you not speaking? And on the cross, he was mocked. Yet, he said nothing against these people. He suffered in silence. Secondly, yet God uses evil and wicked men to accomplish his plans. As I alluded to it, his brothers, they didn't know what was going on. Yet they were responsible for their wickedness and for their sinful acts. They are not exonerated from it. They were not innocent of it. What they did was really wicked and sinful. Yet, God was using their sinfulness, their wickedness, to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Jesus was mocked. Just as Joseph, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver by one of his, his disciples, his apostle, his brother. He came to his own people. His own brothers rejected him. They mocked him. They handed him over to Roman soldiers. And they said, Yo, this is the end of him. But what they didn't know, that behind that, they were Accomplishing God's plan to preserve the lives of many. The pres- to preserve the lives of who? Of righteous people? No. The lives of sinful men and women like you and me. You see, when Jesus was handed over and was crucified and was mocked and they said this is the end of him. Yet it was on that cross that he was bearing our sin and our shame 
and our guilt. And through that, they were actually accomplishing God's plan of salvation for you. If you believe in him. Were they innocent of what they did? No. They were wicked and guilty and sinful men. But that is how God uses wicked and sinful men to accomplish his purpose. This is because God is sovereign. Because he is God. Because he is the almighty. And nothing that is going on in the world, no matter how bleak or sad or grim or dark it is, nothing can stop his plan and his purpose because he is God. Because he is the one, the beginning of Genesis, who made the heavens and the earth. And even though arrogant and prideful men will stand up and say, who is this God? What they do not know is that God can humble them and he will. And God can use wicked and sinful rulers along the world to build his church because he is God. And his plan and his purpose cannot be stopped. Even in Egypt. Even in slavery. Even in bondage. See, as God taught Israel through this story that he can use even evil human days to fulfill his plan, Jesus teaches the church that God can use evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation. So if you are in Christ today, you can take confidence as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. From verse 28, it says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is God's plan and purpose for you today? What was God's plan and purpose for Joseph? See, it wasn't an easy ride. But what was God's plan? What is God's plan and purpose for us today? Is it that we would become the richest people? Is it that we become the most beautiful? Well, maybe God can give you that. But his plan for you, if you are in Christ, is that you will be conformed to the image of a son. And we know that nothing in this world can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from God's plan and purpose for our lives. But yet, if you are, if you are outside that God's plan, if you haven't come and seen Jesus as the one through, to whom this story points us, says so the story points us beyond Joseph to see Christ as God's ultimate savior for us. Yes, Joseph was sent to Egypt to preserve lives. Christ was sent 
to preserve our lives, to give us eternal life. And if you are not trusting in him, then you do not have that. But you can trust in him. No matter how sinful or broken or lost you are, he came exactly for people like you. He came for you. And if you are trusting in him, then you have to remember that he didn't save you because you were the favorite sofa, that you were the best cotton. I'm not saying we are sofas of cotton, but it's just an illustration. He didn't save you because you were the best of all men. No. Because that was all his plan. That people like you will will come into his family and that nothing will separate you from his love. And nothing can cut you away from his grip. Not even the most evil, the sinful, the terrible men and women around the world. Not even the greatest enemy. Not even the greatest thing that you fear. Because you are in his hand. So I hope as we look at the life of Joseph that we would really come but to understand what his story is all about and yet to to look beyond the story and see the one that he points us to who is Jesus. Amen. We'll rise and sing our last hymn.